Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and there is a lot happening in the country, the world, in politics right now. It feels like we're in two different, if not multiple different worlds in terms of processing vaccines, in terms of the attacks coming down from those conservative states, in terms of how people are responding or not responding. And it's a lot. And so we want to use today's episode to just really pause for a second, step back, look at some of the biggest stories in the news and try to make sense of them and how we're all processing them and what we think about what the what's most important to know as we make our way through this confusing world that we're in. And so joining me as always is my co-host Charlene Chang, and we are also joined by our East Coast data doctor and soon-to-be empty nester, whose son I remember as a little child, uh, Dr. Julie Martinez-Ortega. How are you both doing in this early period of September post-Labor Day, things kind of getting going? Hey, Steve, I'm doing great, although I'm in denial about any emptiness, so I'm just really trying to not even think about clock, that yet. <laughs> clock is ticking, Dr. Martinez. <laughs> I have my rising senior uh, starting to look at colleges and next steps, and it's terrifying. And you know what else you should be terrified about? Apparently, this whole like empty nest I'm not trying to scare you or, um, you know, wish for any scenario either way. But, you know, I think like with each generation now with virtual higher education and as we've seen with distance learning, I don't know. A lot of parents had thought they would have an empty nest. <laughs> it's not going to be so empty after exactly, all. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> so there's just... some, yeah, some gross <laughs> things you'd rather they do outside of your own house and nest. Yes, this is true. Things are good on my front. Thanks for asking. And um, yes, yeah, so far, knock on wood, our school has been doing a great job in terms of minimizing COVID cases. None of none of the cases among the students are from school. I think in the beginning, we had some with kids coming back from vacations, but we are very lucky. Our district is really on top of it. And we feel we feel good about sending our child to school every day. And, you and know, or sending your child out of the house every day. Exactly. We've got a lot to cover today. So I'm just going to give a brief update on some of the major headlines right now that we're going to be touching upon. Specifically, we're going to spend a good amount of time today sharing our thoughts and insights and analysis on the Texas abortion ban, which again went into effect on September 1st. We'll get into some updates about COVID and the Delta variant. And we'll also touch on some states we're looking to for hope right now, because hope is also important. Good news is also important and good news is out there. And some of that hope and good news right now can be found in Georgia, Virginia, and Wisconsin. So we'll talk more about that later. We'll end up with a brief update on the California gubernatorial recall election, which was the focus of our last episode, if anybody is listening and would, would like further context. By the way, uh, by the time you hear this show, the polls will have closed. So that's just the nature of our recording schedule. We're recording here on Tuesday. It's election day. That uh, recall election is happening but today is the last day. And by the time we share the episode, there will be results. But we'll be sharing with you today a bit about how we feel things are panning out and based on what we know right now. And we hope that when we get back on the next episode, we'll have some good news to share on that front in California. So Steve, uh, just wanted to turn it over to you and sort of lead us into this topic talking about this recently passed Texas abortion ban, new law. 
Yeah, and I wanted to actually ask the two of you, frankly, how you're processing really this moment, right? And so there's been a lot of talk and attention about the Texas um, abortion ban that was passed, but that's not the only thing that was passed there or in any of these other Southern states, right? This is also a time period of significant restrictions on voting rights are being passed in all of these different states, Arizona, Georgia, um, Florida, Texas. It's because of the conservative nature of the state legislature in Texas that they were able to pass this abortion ban. You've got these attacks on uh, quote unquote critical race theory, which is anything about racism being taught, was ongoing, you know, xenophobia and immigration. So it's like there's attacks on people of color, there's attacks on women, there's attacks on the reproductive rights. And so I'm interested for you guys in particular, you know, as women of color, as parents, how are you both holding up, but how are you processing this? And how does this land in terms of the different aspects of your identity that they're actually going at? Or is it all kind of one undifferentiated mass? I'm just very curious, like how you're dealing with this and then how you're assessing it because it's multidimensional, but you're all one person who has all these different aspects within them. Julia, I'd love for you to go first. Sure. I think, you know, there's sort of the intellectual way that one deals with this where you sort of think of it in the big picture and all. And then there's just that real life, personal, visceral reaction that you get to it. All right. I mean, it's, it's incredibly painful, right? I mean, I, I'd add in the just out of control COVID situation and, you know, watching our supposed leaders actively trying to stop people from taking care of themselves and the people around them, right? So there's just so much happening that, you know, it's it's too much to take in on an emotional level, I think. And so, you know, for me, at least, I, I do try to sort of do the whole brain aspect of it, right? And to me, these are all threads of the same cloth. They're just, um, you know, manifesting in different ways, but it really does come back to when you look at a place like Texas, where the, you know, the new abortion legislation has just gone through, it's been decades, well, it's always been this way, but we've seen like a heightened focus by the right wing in, you know, completely taking over the uh, state legislature. And, you know, they obviously have the governor now, and they're able to just like, push through things that are completely, I wouldn't even say against, but like, in the face, like just, you know, offensive, like, you know, repressive actions that just like, to me, it it all comes to this thing of it, the the other side sees the end is in sight, and they're going to fight like hell yeah. to stop that from happening. And this is what that looks like in real life, like, literally, you know, every day, I get the paper, whatever I'm reading and listening to, and I'm like, Oh, my God, here's the next piece of that manifestation. So, And Julie, you're from because I don't assume all the listeners listen to all our episodes. So not everybody might know that you're actually from Texas. Oh, yeah. And yeah. I, you know, or, that, San Antonio. that is, that's your home. <laughs> you know, people there. You were a yeah. young woman growing up. My whole up family there. is still there. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. it must just also, you know, that's another, I imagine, a layer that it's hitting you, that it hit, it literally is hitting so close to home. Yeah, um, no, it's it's deeply personal. I mean, the you think of, you know, when I was an, a young woman growing up there, it, 
just the way the low expectations that people are even allowed to have for themselves, right? When you're from a working class Mexican American family, right? It, there's already so much. And there, you know, we saw these glimmers of hope of people starting to feel like, oh, you know, it doesn't have to be so um I keep going back to the word repressive. You know, there's room for a, a Mexican-American mayor and Henry Cisneros. You know, there's now a city council filled with, you know, lots of, of Latina women, right? But this is like, nope, nope, we're not going to let that go any further than it's already gone. Like there, there's a war on in Texas that we don't acknowledge and, and appreciate. And, it, you know, they see the numbers and what's coming and they're going to do everything they can to convince us, right. That, that a different way is not possible, even though, you know, we know it is and we're going to make it. So. Yeah. And and I would say like for myself, it hits, first of all, just incredibly viscerally, the bodies that are getting attacked by this law are the bodies that are like my body. Right. And we, Mm -hmm. it's about, you know, I don't use even, the terms female or woman anymore, because there are people who don't identify that way, but they have what I say, they're people with uteruses, they're people who can Mm -hmm. get pregnant. And all of us with those bodies, our bodies are under attack, and are also explicitly being told through a law like this and the message and and a trend, by the way, in terms of those who support this, that our bodies don't matter, our bodies don't belong to us. And so that is extremely terrifying, maddening, And I do have, I am a woman of color. My daughter is a um, girl of color. We have those bodies. And so it does make me um, completely just, you know, just it's, it's so sad. It's, um, there's so many, you know, my, I'm a wordsmith, but my often words are uh, fail me in this moment because it is so about in my body, right? That Mm -hmm. fight is in my body. And then I think about all the women, all the people who have fought and died over, the many years for us to have that right, right? That it, ultimately that right is re- is relatively new. I don't know, Julie, if if you have the history, but in terms of the history of those of us with those bodies in this country having the freedom to that, first of all, man, many, many states have restrictive laws, but you know the fact that nationally we had fought to the level where we had Roe v. Wade, we just, it's terrifying to think that all of that could be lost. And that's why, yes, I am... I never lived in Texas, but that's not the point. So what I keep thinking is that it doesn't matter. It's not about, it's not obviously just about Texas. It's like if this is a trend and this is what's going to happen, then it matters to all of us. And then ultimately, I also feel that I am privileged, right? I know the statistics. And then for this episode, I also did a bunch of research and I've been reading articles. I know that the, the people who are disproportionately affected are people with these bodies who are black and brown, black and Latino, and Latinx, who are disproportionately affected by factors such as poverty, but also lack of access to health care, and are going to disproportionately be still seeking out abortions, by the way. Abortion bans don't usually mean that people don't get abortions. They will still try to get them, but they will get them in unsafe ways that are draconian. You know, they're just, you don't even want to think about it that in 2021, this is what those people have to, um, these are the choices they will have to face. And again, people who have resources or privileges, including people like myself, will have the option to go to travel to another state or find other options. But many, many um, black and brown people will not be able to. And that's the part that really then fires me up beyond my own individual 
physical response is this this great amount of anger and frustration into wanting to do more to protect our you know fellow sisters and other people who will not be in the privileged set to have much better options. They will be left on their own and it'll be just like going back in time. And I, I just want to point out there have been these like memes or social media statements saying, oh, it's like Texas is the Taliban. It's like Handmaid's mm. Tale. Well, it's not like all them. You know, what I really like is, you know, these other responses back on the internet saying, no, it's like we're in the United States. This is our country. <laughs> this is what we do. This is what we are doing to our own people. We don't need to compare ourselves to others. We, we have a long history of attacks on people with uteruses and people with these bodies. So let's let's just face it and own it and not say that other, you know, these other examples of other countries are the ultimate pinnacle of this type of evil, you know, we are, we are actually doing that. So yeah. obviously I have a yeah. lot to say. Yeah, right. <laughs> let, let me ask you, you, you both this question. And I think maybe to Julie, since you're there and you kind of analyze these different pieces for us, even, you know, I was just looking at the, Julie was talking about the, <laughs> the sense that, you know, there's a war going on. I was all like, oh, maybe somebody should write a book about how the civil war never ended. <laughs> right. Which is get going those, on that. Steve. Yes. Those who have not followed, this is the book we are trying to manuscript. We're trying to finish here. And so I have a lot of contextual things in that regard. Right. People and also talk about people are, are saying like, you know, I can't believe that, you know, 40 plus years later, we're dealing with Roe v. Wade, et cetera. It's like, well, it's really a couple hundred years later that these fights have actually been going on. But what's clear to me is the voting rights side, right? And I was looking at the census data, which I didn't even fully appreciate. I know that, you know, we talked a little bit on a previous episode, but in Texas, there's a Texas Tribune article, and we can put this in the, in the show notes, that Latinos and whites are the exact same percentage of the population now. It's like 398 and 39.3%. And the Latino growth, Texas gained 11 Hispanic residents for every one white resident since 2010. Yep. And so there's just 95% of the state's growth in the past 10 years was from people of color. So that becomes very clear and simple from a, a voting rights standpoint. It's like, oh, we've got to stop this. So we're going to have voter suppression. So people can't actually yeah. vote. Yeah. Well, and, and oh. it's we can't forget this law was passed literally in the days after they were finally able to get quorum again in Texas, right? The, all the talk about the Texas state legislators, you know, going off to DC and whatnot, breaking quorum was about the voting rights bills right. that they but, were trying to pass. But question. this was right there alongside that. Because it's my all question. part of the same effort that they're, right? I mean- Well, right, it, but it's clearer from a, from a power standpoint, mm -hmm. right? We've got to stop people from voting so we can cling to power so these people of color are here. What's your analysis of why they're specifically going after the abortion piece? Because it's not as directly related to voting in terms of them holding political power. So what's your analysis around why this is such a central thing for what they're going after? Well, simple numbers to win in Texas. We need white women who are progressive and who see themselves as more aligned with us and their interests more aligned with us than with the old guard. Right. And this is a way to shut people down and to make people feel like they, you know, not only is your voice not important at the voting booth, right? You don't even have a, the ultimate decision about 
literally what happens with your own body, right? That's right. Uh, they, to That's me, they right. fit hand in hand. And it's the, they both strike at the heart of the coalition that will be required for, you know, victory at any kind of ballot box in, in statewide in Texas. So before we pivot to the next topic, I just want to give two shout outs. One is to a publication called The 19th News. The 19th News's coverage on the Texas abortion ban has been excellent. They are an independent nonprofit newsroom covering gender politics and policy. So I definitely want everyone to check that out. And I really want to encourage all listeners to take a look at an essay that was written recently by our staff writer, Fola Onifade, titled What the Texas Abortion Ban Means to Me as a Black Woman. It is so powerful and it really does a much better job of what I was trying to convey, which is how a lot of women of color are feeling right now on this issue and how it's just this full on assault on their entire beings. And, and also it has excellent journalism in it, great statistics with the numbers and data to back up this argument that right now a law like this disproportionately impacts black and brown people. You can read her essay on our Democracy in Color blog. And those of you who already subscribed to our newsletter, you should have seen it already in our last newsletter in our opening piece. But if you didn't catch it, again, you can catch her essay on our Democracy in Color blog on our website. Steve, I wanted to check in with you and see if you can help our listeners put it into a national perspective. Yeah, there's a there was a really good and illuminating podcast episode of The Daily um, I think it was a couple months ago, and we can link to that as well. And in particular, we're talking about the anti-trans legislation that was moving forward. So it's another part of this, you know, multi-front attack that they're making in Texas. And what was very interesting to me was two things in terms of the political trends, the political moment that we're in. And so, for one, they were saying that the Texas legislature actually, contrary to like the tone and tenor of some of its top statewide officials. The legislature actually had a fair amount of bipartisanship, relatively, you know, the word moderate, what does that even mean these days? But there was there was not the orientation, to the extent of they were not able to actually move the anti-trans legislation a few years ago. And so what, the, what this uh, was highlighting was how Texas's legislature took a hard turn to the right after Obama was elected. And so that, this, this concept, right, that we are in this war, we are in the what this and what the census is showing is that people feel and it is qualitatively in their li- their lives in terms of the white fear and anxiety and then the numbers are bearing it out that these are the last days of this being a majority white country and so the fear and anxiety and backlash to that is what has escalated the level of intensity and attack and then what this podcast was pointing out was that they were able to keep a lid on some of this this current legislation heading into 2020 because they were fearful that they were going to lose control of the state legislature or that the Democrats are only nine seats away in the state legislature being able to flip control of that body. And so it was very much in play in 2020, but the Republicans won and it emboldened them. And that's one of the things that people don't fully appreciate about the legacy of Trump is that he has quantified the size of the white supremacist vote within this country. And it has given a lot more momentum and courage and confidence to the white right wing within this country. And so that's what led them to, it's like, okay, we survived 2020. We're still in charge. We're going to bring it forward all the terrible stuff. So that's the context, but linked to that is what we have, you know, flagged before in our discussion around the census. 
is that despite all of their efforts, despite all their anti-immigration pieces, their attempts to slow down immigration and migration, the country has transformed even more rapidly than, than we anticipated, right? Julie helped you know, crunch all these different numbers for Brown as the new white when we put it together. The U.S. and all of these states are more diverse than we even anticipated at this point in time. So that means that we're that much closer in terms of a new American majority of people of color and progressive whites to have the numbers to beat back this. And so that's going to be the fight of the 2020s. Right? I mean, Rob Brownstein has said that the 2020s may be like the 1850s in terms of the level of conflict within this country, which is why we're writing this book. If we're able to prevail, as they have in places like Virginia, which we'll touch on later, what is possible is tremendous. And these are the fundamental underpinnings of the most conservative parts of the country. That If these places flip, then conservative power within this country takes a very serious blow, and that has very long-term implications as well. So on that note, let's turn to talking about that ongoing civil war in the form of the topic of COVID. <laughs> so yeah. we're going to, let's give an update on where things are now with the current Delta variant in the U.S. and with the coronavirus vaccine and what impact it's all having on President Biden's presidency so far. President Biden recently announced a vaccine mandate to get about 80 million eligible Americans who are currently unvaccinated vaccinated in an attempt to combat the rising cases of the Delta variant and rising related deaths. This mandate applies to federal employees and workers on government contracts. The Labor Department has also issued a ruling that employers with over 100 employees must ensure their workers are vaccinated or tested weekly. Just for some context, some 660,000 people have died so far of COVID. It's just a staggering number that I still struggle to wrap my head around. And cases in American children are at an all-time high. Nearly 30,000 children were hospitalized in August alone. And as of September 2nd, new weekly cases for children have surpassed 250,000. So thankfully, based on available data so far, the incidences of severe disease or death among children have remained relatively low. So just super thankful for that and hope that that continues to be the case. But it's, you know, no matter how you slice it, it's a massive crisis that, speaking of Trump's legacy, I mean, this is where we are. No thanks to um, him and his administration and his supporters. Some Republican governors across the country, like Florida's Ron DeSantis, are framing the COVID vaccination mandate as unconstitutional. He wrote in a recent fundraising email that Biden has, quote, declared war on constitutional government, the rule of law, and the jobs and livelihoods of millions of Americans, end quote, according to the New York Times. I, I just have to jump in, Charlene, and, <laughs> and point out it, it's just a bit ironic, if not very telling, right, that for so many of these states with the lowest COVID vaccinations right now, before COVID, they actually had some of the nation's highest rates for, you know, the common vaccinations, especially those that, you know, relate to children. So if you look at a state like Mississippi, it actually has, well, right now it's got one of the lowest COVID vaccination rates, you know, tremendous difficulty happening right now in their ERs and intensive care units. Um, but they had actually led the country in uh, vaccinations for kids, for measles, mumps, the sort of, you know, run of the mill stuff that you have to get for your kids when you take them for their yearly checkups. Right. And 
that's, you know, of course, that took a lot of work by incredible child health advocates and Mound Bayou and all of those folks, Elsie Dorsey, Dr. John Hatch, Dr. Geiger, who, you know, put in years of their lives to transforming and you know, bringing good care to those communities. But it's all just going out the window, right, as we watch what's happening with COVID, right? So the average, uh, last I checked, the seven-day average death rate was 52 deaths per day in wow. the state of Mississippi, which is not a big state, right? And last year at this time, that was only 17 deaths per day, right? And one of the things that is sort of surprising to me is I see these terrible things happening there for folks in Mississippi is that I, I was there just this, a couple of months ago this summer and drove through um, Vicksburg, Mississippi, you know, in from Louisiana. And it was just striking how the minute we crossed the border, there were so many people who were wearing masks and doing their social distancing and being really careful, right? It was like night and day, but apparently that has not, you know, spread to people actually getting vaccinations. So something's mm. working, but it's not all, all the parts are not there. And clearly the people in Mississippi are suffering because of, of these really bad, you know, statewide policy choices that are being made. And clearly, based on the prior rates of vaccinations, the people in these states have to believe in science to some extent, right? But there's clearly a gap when it comes to getting that COVID shot that's so desperately needed by you know more people there. That's such interesting insight. I didn't know that. And this whole framing of how all these people are anti-vax, right? Anti-vaccine, anti-vaxxers, it's just not necessarily true. It's, it's much more complicated than that. They're, they're, they're pro-vaccination for some, you know, in the past, just not right now, because things have become so politicized, in my opinion. And so, Julie, can you share with us, because um, I know you've been doing research on this, how many states have banned vaccine mandates? Yeah, so a uh, recent Times, uh, New York Times article laid out 11 states. So those are Arizona, Florida, and Texas, no surprise there. They've expressly banned COVID-19 vaccine mandates, right? Mandates broadly um, spoken. In each of those states, so Arizona, Florida, and Texas, the rate of the population that is actually fully vaccinated is still below 50%, right? That national average is 75%. So, which would probably be a lot higher if you got just Texas done, right? Because it's such a big state. Um, and so as a consequence, the seven-day average of new cases is at least five times greater than it was a year ago right, for each of those three states. It's just, it's crazy. So in Texas, the seven-day average of new cases on the 13th of September was 3,515. That was in 2020, right? Today, 18,908. Wow. I mean, really, it, yeah. All right, I'm not, I'm not visiting. Fivefold. I'm you know, not whatever. visiting Texas. Yeah, yeah. No, it's... A, it, oh, that's interesting. That's wild. And, well, you're talking about... Vicksburg, and I was like, wait, I remember Vicksburg. So I was actually just writing about it. So everybody talks about, you know, Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, right? So right after Gettysburg was Vicksburg, which was one of the last battles, actually, of the Civil War um, in terms of the, and I believe that they it that the Confederates surrendered on July 4th. And so a lot of people in Vicksburg and Mississippi will not celebrate Independence Day <laughs> because it's also <laughs> the, period the day, of of, day of their defeat. Yeah, so we talked about at the beginning of the pandemic, right, the podcast, you know, with Ron Brownstein, right, about this divide in the country continues to play itself out, you know, one virus, but still two nations that battle with one another, and but the virus doesn't care, 
and it's just rolling through um, these different communities and whatnot. So it's really a remarkable situation. I think that's the other thing that I want to say too, is that it's just interesting to me, Biden doing these vaccine mandates. And part of me is all like, well, what were they waiting for, right? In terms of what, it's like, what did they really expect to happen? Did they not have an analysis and assessment from all of the different anti-masking motion that was an energy that was out there that people were going to be anti-vaccine? And so I really think that they were too timid and fearful of the backlash from the uh, you know, the MAGA crowd, um, if they impose vaccine mandates, but then now the data is so overwhelming. It's like, and I think everyone's just fed up. It's just kind of like, well, this is absurd. We have this vaccine. It actually works. All the data shows that it works and these people still won't do it. And people are still dying and we can't go out and actually live our lives properly. So the political calculus has shifted and that, and then it's showing in the polls that people are like, this is absurd. I said, we've got to get more people vaccinated so we can get back to having more normal lives. Well, I think we've covered you know, some really important headline news today. It's important for people to be in the know. I'd like to think that you know, it's important for us to offer our perspective, often through what's called color conscious lens. And it's he- but it's heavy stuff. And I know for myself, when I scroll through social media news, sometimes you just end up with this like, oh my God, it's all bad news. It, it can feel overwhelming. So I wanted us to make sure that we end with reminding people that with all the you know heavy headlines out there, there's actually always good news happening. You just don't hear about it and you don't see it. It's you know, harder to find. And I wanted us to touch upon some of that good news out there, namely in places that are giving us hope, specifically Georgia, Virginia, and Wisconsin. In Georgia, a fact that's flown largely under the radar during the hype about the 2020 census on a national scale is that the demographic change taking place across the Peach State is um, really good news. It's exciting news. According to the Atlantic Voice, the section of the state's population that identifies as white fell for the first time in history to 51.9%. That's right, Charlene. And I think, you know, we forget or we most people are just unaware of the fact that Georgia's just not going to go backwards. I mean, these numbers make it clear. It, it It's just going to continue advancing forward in a more progressive way. And the days of Georgia being the backwater are are behind them now. And it just won't be possible, I don't think, for them to try to undo <laughs> undo that, which is, you know, what they're trying to uh, avoid happening in Texas, as we said earlier. But, you know, statewide, the number of Black Georgians increased by 13%, right? And meanwhile, the white population dropped just by a little bit, by 1%. But, you know, you can't have both of those things happening uh, for year after year and not have a significant shift in your what your demographics look like statewide, right? Meanwhile, the state's Asian um, API population jumped by 53%, and the Latinos there increased by a third, a 32%, right? So the state is now just very, very narrowly majority white. And, you know, not surprisingly, given all of this, right, the majority of Georgia's children are already people of color. So that's that's the future voters, the future workforce of Georgia. Starting with the Georgia piece. And again, see, I didn't even realize that it had moved as much um, as what Julie was just was laying out. Right. That the, the Latino population of Georgia is now 10.5 percent of the population. The Asians have grown by 200,000 people. They see Abrams lost Georgia by 50,000 people. Right. And so the fact that in a state that again has a you know meaningful minority of its popu- of, a, of its population and its voters are progressive whites in the 25 26 percent range but 
the fact that people of color are just basically almost the actual majority of people in the state now, that bodes very, very well for Governor Abrams' candidacy in 2022. And so that, you know, gives me a lot of hope. Um, and I mean, I was already hopeful and optimistic, but I did not realize the underlying data and numbers were as favorable as they actually are. So there you have that. And so then I think far under the radar is what's happening in Virginia. And that the New York Times did do a good piece around the voting rights legislation that was drafted by Marcia Price and Jennifer McClellan, where they said that alone among the Confederate states, that Virginia is moving in the direction of expanding democracy. And so they just actually had the ceremony for signing that bill with the governor and really with those two uh, legislative leaders as you know, front and center with the governor. And so in terms of future political leadership and where we can go in terms of expanding democracy, kind of the opposite of what Texas is actually doing, Virginia is doing very, very promising and encouraging things in that regard. And then also as part of that is that, you know, there's a big, there's a big part of what we're, you know, dealing with in the, in the book, looking at the Confederate battle plan, right, which is to distort and impact public opinion. A big part of that has been these monuments. And so it's really, as I've been trying to write about, really understanding more that it has to do with polluting our public spaces. People should be able to walk in public spaces and enjoy themselves and be who they are and not see these towering monuments to white supremacy. And so one of, if not possibly the largest in the country, was the Robert E. Lee Memorial in Richmond, Virginia, which was put up in 1890, 30 years before the Lincoln Memorial went up. So Lincoln, who ended slavery, took 30 years to get his memorial. They threw up that uh, Robert E. Lee piece, and it's enormous. It's like six stories high how big this thing is. And that it finally came down, um, I believe it was last week, actually. And there's video of it, and people are showing. You can see how big it is because they, as they're lifting it up off of the base, They've got the, the, you know, the human beings next to it, and they're like tiny compared to the size of this thing. But it has come down. And so it is, that is a strong symbol and, and reclaiming of our public space and a repudiation of this notion that these basically traitorous murderers should have this level of salutation. And so that's, I, you know, I think there's a lot of both symbolic um, and you know, psychic reward from seeing that transpire. And so just one other thing I want to flag uh, real quickly too, is that we're getting close to 2022. And there was a poll recently came out about the Wisconsin Senate race. The Democrats are like 50-50, we're controlling the Senate. So that 2022, we, have to, we can't lose any, hopefully we can pick up a few seats. One of the ones that's going to be in play is the Wisconsin Senate seat held by Ron Johnson. There's a young African-American, who's Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes, who is running for that seat. And so a poll recently came out showing him actually far ahead among the Democrats and very competitive in terms of with the incumbent as well. And so that's actually a great pickup opportunity for us. And so I want to put that on everybody's radar that not only do we have a chance to flip uh, one of the Republican-held Senate seats, but also a chance to get a young, progressive African-American elected. Um, into that position. And that actually is the profile that's going to make that seat more competitive because it'll make the voters in Milwaukee and other places more inspired, motivated to increase our turnout. So it's like under the radar that these things are actually happening, but there are a lot of signs that the, that the trend and what we can be looking forward to in 2022 can actually be quite positive and quite hopeful. Okay, real quick, Steve, before we wrap up, wanted to touch briefly on the California recall, give an update. 
as of this recording, the latest polling average, according to 538, Newsom is polling at 57.3% for keep him and 41.5% polling saying that they would like to have him removed. Steve, we've covered the recall in our last episode and why it's important. So just right now, I just wanted to kind of ask you, how do you think things are going to play out? What do you think we'll wake up to tomorrow or by the end of this week? Well, it's the power of our podcast. Since we did the pod that everything's turned around in Newsom's favor. Yeah, I'll take that. that, um, Take that credit. So the California is a very democratic state and the, the risk was apathy and unawareness. And so a lot of people rate, uh, you know, like Ludovic and others raising the alarm and ringing the bell, it's gotten people more focused on att- and, and paying attention. And the numbers seem to be playing that stuff out, both in the poll in terms of, and then who actually was voting and what votes are coming back. So I fully expect that um, the recall will be soundly um, defeated. Woohoo. <laughs> All right. So as we warned you at the beginning, there's a lot happening. And so I'm glad we were able to touch on some of it. Thank you, uh, Julie and and Charlene, for helping to help us walk through it and make sense of it and process all of this. Sure that more will be continuing to unfold. And so look forward to taking it up in future podcasts as well. I want to thank all of our listeners for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets, and finding us at Democracy in Color on Facebook or signing up for our weekly newsletter at democracyincolor.com. If you listen to our podcast on iTunes, please leave us a rating and a comment. And if you are subscribed to to our newsletter, we really encourage you to do so. We're going to be doing a survey of our members to get a better understanding of what you're looking for, who our audience is, how we can better serve you. So not only should you sign up to get the great content that we're trying to provide, but also to let us know what more you'd like to see. So this podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker, support from Charlene Chang, Bola Onifade, and April Elkier. Recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio San Francisco. Until next time, keep the faith.